Welcome to MyPersonalFootballCoach.com's Soccer Player Development Podcast. Discover all the secrets, hints and tips about soccer player development and soccer coaching from some of the leading figures in world soccer. Here's your host, Saul Isaacson-Hurst. What's happening, guys? Welcome back to another show. This week's guest is Ivan Kepicka. Uh, Ivan is uh, previously assistant academy manager and academy manager at Dynamo Zagreb. Also worked as sporting director at Hijack Split, uh, uh, Legia Warsaw in Poland, and he's done some work with Brentford and Hibs as well. Uh, someone who's just uh, one of the best in the world at what he does, really. Really interesting guy. Really, really played a pivotal role in developing that Croatian way, that Dynamo way. Obviously, Romeo Jozak's been on the show before. He worked closely with Romeo. So talks about what makes Croatia so unique, so productive, so good at producing these individual technical excellent players with a, with, a, with a population of only 4 million, how they constantly overperform and punch above their weight. And obviously then talked about his transition into more strategic roles, working sport director roles uh, around the world. So a top, top guy, uh, another fantastic episode, really privileged he agreed to come on the show. Like I said, I, I first met Ivan several years ago at one of the conferences uh, out in America and um, really, yeah, like I said, really engaged and really intelligent, speaks about the game really well. Uh, so I know one you're going to enjoy and don't forget remember the my personal football coach virtual conference is live 20% discount code podcast vc check out the link in the bio uh, 14 presentations by some of the best player developers in world soccer but without further ado let's get into the show so ivan kept here welcome to the show uh thank you very much for having me it's a privilege to be here and i'm looking forward to our football chat lovely so just can you give us a brief outline of your playing and coaching journey up to this point um, well, I, I wasn't a very good player, so and I realized that uh, early in my career. I, I played uh, through my early twenties, uh, but even in my teenage, I've kind of uh, thought that going into coaching will be part of my future. Uh, to be perfectly honest, I had no intention or, or dream that I could make a living and, and professionally live out of football. Uh, it was a more of you know something that I was passionate about, I, something I wanted to do and explore. And uh, I started early with my football badges uh, at a UFA B course. I fell in love with sports psychology as a, a concept and uh, started vo- volunteering at a, at a U9 local team in, in my former club. Uh, and and there, you, there we are, maybe today, 19, 20 years later, uh, that I was pulled in into, into this uh, world and industry with coaching management and now, most recently, as a as a sporting director, can you give some just a rundown of the where you, the places you've worked and the positions, just briefly? Um, I, I'm a native of Croatia, so I, I grew up here and uh, I played played football in third division. Uh, I went to the US to play collegiate soccer on a scholarship, and that was a very rewarding experience because it is you know exposed me to a new world, and uh, uh, I started coaching uh, in in there as well. Uh, so I continued coaching in the, in the U.S. as well. Uh, I think that, you know, I was struck by uh, a, a fortune of uh, a great fortune of luck when I uh, came across NorCal Premier, which is a football league in Northern California that, you know, has some of the most open minded and progressive thinking people. And uh, while I was coaching uh, in, a, in a small club, Walnut Creek, uh, I was exposed to Fiorentina, to Ajax youth directors, Benfica, 
Dinamo Zagreb that that I uh, came in touch with and brought over. So I was, you know, exposed to uh, many many coaching education opportunities, um, and then I basically spent all my money uh, exploring uh, the pathways and went to Argentina, went to Japan, to scientific conferences that are covering football uh, during during my time. Um, all in all, I coached for 12 years in the in the youth game. Uh, seven out of these, I was also a collegiate coach uh, in the U.S. system, which I think was closest to the professional ranks uh, over there. And um, when I had a chance to take over an academy, I, I did that at, at San Ramon Soccer Club in uh, California. Did that for three years before I moved back to, to Dinamo Zagreb as, as assistant academy director. Uh, where I stayed for another three. So I had a coaching journey, youth management journey. And then from 2017 onwards, I stepped into senior football as a sporting director at Legia Warsaw, uh, the biggest club in Poland, uh, won the cup, won the title, uh, but you know, experienced also what it is to be at a big club with big expectations and pressure. Following that, I, I had a stint and work with Brentford, um, then at the champ- in the championship level. And uh, after that, Hajduk split as sporting director, uh, head of recruitment at Hibs in Scotland. And most of my recent uh, work has been consulting with clubs like uh, Honved, Sarajevo, and TSC, Bačka Topola, uh, as well as, a, as an MLS club. So my coaching journey led into a management journey uh, on the youth side and then into a management journey on the, on the senior side, where maybe I think it, it was a... Uh, meant to be as well and maybe suits me better uh, being, you know, the type of personality that I have and strategic thinker and, and looking forward to build things over many years, not just win the game on Saturday, which which as a coach, often you you think you think about the most. So really interesting journey already. You've worked in some amazing clubs. Tell us about that Dynamo role then. How did that come about? And tell us about your initial experiences as you went in there. Um. I, I was connected, I think, to Dinamo 2009. Uh, so for four or five years, I was an associate of theirs and I was organizing uh, youth camps uh, in the U.S. I was scouting players that were coming on trial to Dinamo Zagreb, uh, organizing some, some conferences, expanding the network uh, across the U.S. And at some point in time, they told me, hey, you know, we, we could use your skill set. Would you be willing to come back home to Croatia? And it was uh, an hour never type of thing. Um, two years prior, I, I passed on an opportunity to go to Fiorentina in Italy, who I've you know visited three times. I, I had a very close relationship with. Then I was, uh, I told myself it's now or never. And, and if you don't move back to Europe in the professional ranks, it's unlikely uh, another opportunity uh, as such will come again. And and uh, I I went you know head first, uh, but um, to another level of football, but returning home. Interesting. So then, t- tell us about then. What was your initial? I mean, obviously, you, you you know. Tell us, tell us as you know, people who are coaches left the game. Tell us about the Dynamo philosophy. What makes it so unique? What makes it you know one of the most successful academies in the world? You know, one of the powerhouses behind Croatian football. Um, it's tough to put a finger on it because I think it's an element of many things. I think we're in a society where we're looking to get. Uh, pill type of solutions, you know, uh, put it in your mouth and, and uh, all the problems will, will go. In reality, I think Dinamo's success is, is too many elements, um, yeah, has been producing significant uh, amount of players on the world stage 
And I was fortunate to be joining that group of people that has made that happen and accelerated. Uh, and prior to myself was uh, Romel Jozak's uh, academy director. Uh, I think he was also a guest at the, at the podcast, mm-hmm. podcast some years ago. We worked together for several years. We, we wrote a book together uh, that is kind of the base of the Croatian Football Federation's curriculum that in its base really has the Dinamo's curriculum, uh, how we have used to, to develop players over many years prior to my arrival uh, to the academy and, and, and after. Um, I've worked two years under two legendary former coaches, uh, Marian Vlak and Ivo Shushak uh, of Dinamo Zagreb. Had a fantastic experience to be working a, a alongside as a as a younger guy, kind of more agile, more organizationally and managerially oriented, but with people with experience above you that can that can help you. Um, and what I can say is that it was it was amazing to see some some young players like Josip Brekalo, like Joško Gvardiol, uh, coached by some very talented uh, young Croatian coaches who actually since then have emerged to the Premier scene as well, uh, to, the, to the pro levels, um, and, and work together and kind of building their pathways, um, managing their relationships, um, scouting the best possible talent that there is in Croatia to come to Dinamo and then put it all together in a mix uh, so that as a final product ends up being Uh, m- many titles for the first team, uh, many international sales, many European stage appearances uh, for the club. Can you sort of like, you know, and it's difficult, but to give us, you know, sum up what the, you know, talk about the, that fantastic book you wrote with Romeo. Yeah, Romeo is a great friend of the show. I know Romeo very well, another legend in Croatian football. Tell us a bit about, you know, that in practice, though, what's that curriculum like? Tell us about that, you know, it's very detailed, it's got quality there. Can you sum up for us to what does it mean to, what's the Croatian, the Dynamo You know, Zagreb now Croatian DNA in terms of player development was keys to it. I would say number one, it, it was, uh, and we kind of outlined in our book in the five steps. So bring the best possible players. So there was never ever a boundary as to who we should bring. Uh, find the best possible players you can from a quite a small uh, player pool in Croatia. To be fair, uh, only you know below four million that that we we're recruiting and scouting for initially, and then only in the older age groups you're able to expand that further. Uh, find the most talented coaches, and, and all of them were from Zagreb area. Again, fortunate to be in a, in a capital. Um, put them put them together, expose them to the higher, highest levels of competition, uh, fight against the best teams in Europe on a daily basis, and have the in, internal competition do its work and, and uh, put a proper program in place, which is the curriculum that you've mentioned. Um, that was something that they were working through. So... In that curriculum, maybe we outline some things that are important to us. So we feel that a developmental style of play is kind of already in our DNA. So in the uh, Balkan area, I would say in former Yugoslavia, the football that was, you know, short passing on the ground, creativity, flair, uh, skill above all was always valued uh, more than anything else. I do think we have some competitiveness. Maybe maybe it's in our genes. Maybe it's below our genes. I don't know how to explain it, but we are a, a very playful culture in that sense, quite competitive. Um, and that's, you know, when it moves into the sports arena uh, also helps to have that. What And people end up calling winning mentality, which is a term which I don't like uh, to, to, fray, to, to hear or even repeat myself because I think it's a mix of many. Other elements, the competitiveness, the you know courage, uh, aggressiveness, however you want to call it, but 
those things need to be need to be coming together in the players, in the coaches. And I think also the pressure from the club itself that was relying heavily on us forming uh, players to be sold for value. So we had to produce, uh, they had to promote them in the first team and, and give them a platform and then resell them on. And that money was then feeding the club further. So I, I do think that Dinamo's success today in playing Champions League, Europa League, really started maybe 15 years ago uh, when when the budget was, you know, 10 times smaller and, and uh, you had to grow it bit by bit um, in, in quality of players and, and the level you were actually able to reach. Interesting. I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, mentioned the flair there. I mean, Yugoslavia used to be known, they used to call the Brazilians of Europe, right? I mean, that was their tag name. They're very much those flair players. What I'm trying to, you know, get out of you is that, because I mean, I've been there a couple of times, experienced the training there, very much, you know, an emphasis on individual possession, individual technique, individual brilliance. I mean, that's what I'm, so how do you, how do you, yeah. how do you, what, what in the curriculum helps you get that out of players in practice? I mean, for us coaches, I mean, tell us yeah. what does that look like on the, on the grass? Um, you know, you know as, a, as a young coach myself, uh, I caught myself sometimes coaching an under-13 or an under-15 team, and you want it to be a, a team quickly. And um, part, of, part of, I think, Dinamo's success was that we really, not that we didn't push it, we, we pushed away from that agenda. We pushed towards, let's develop the player within a team setting, the most that we can. So you could see that a lot of our methods actually reflect that. So a lot of individual training, um, supplemental individual training for uh, players in the team that are even for, with a separate coach that is maybe a former legend of the club that can you know demo amazing technical elements and be an inspiration to the young players as well. Um, a lot of isolated work in that sense so that uh, our execution of actions is actually perfect. So we were, we were striving to do things in great control and in great speed at the same time, um, rather than rushing into games or rushing into strategy and tactics. So th that's maybe some of the parts that you've seen where quite a quite a methodical way of developing individual small group setting and and then uh, team setting as as something that comes more important only in the oldest age groups. Um, as an academy director, for example, I had some basically conflicts which are natural um, of, you know, coach under 13, under 15, under 17. Uh, they would very often play a player and you can see that the player is already in the comfort zone and cruising, let's say a midfielder, right? Oh, but I need him as a six, but as a six, he's really cruising. So we would have to push the coaches to push that player to play as the 10. Why? In a tighter space where he has to, develop his orientation and scan uh, around himself more, develop more awareness, knowing that eventually he will probably be a six or an eight. But during the growth process, you want to, you want to be pushing him outside of his comfort zone. So um, an example of a, of a player that I coached who was a 10 in, in, in my years uh, in the national team within Nicola Moro, he's now in Bologna, um, clearly at the top level of, of senior football is a, is a six, eight. So you have to be making these type of things. Um, when, when I was coach of the under 17s of Dynamo, we pushed three players up from uh, the under 16s to play up all the time. So that is another way of uh, putting development above, uh, uh, you know, uh, forming a winning team uh, where you're exposing players to, 
higher levels of competition on a daily basis, which I think now these are methods that are quite normal, that you're pushing players up as early as possible and accelerating their pathways. I think more and more clubs are giving individual attention to, to their development. And, you know, I, I understand that in, in football philosophy, there is this wave of running into football games. Uh, we, we don't run into them. They're an important part of our training. But I would say that um, as much as having quality decision-making, we feel that quality execution is as important. And doing that uh, in isolated circumstances helps uh, perfecting the technique so that when you get to the world stage and you have a great idea that you actually, that the ball gets where you wanted it to go. Um, I mean, I mean, that's, that's, I mean, that's, that's interesting, isn't it? Because I mean, I was going to ask about that because obviously that you see that a lot in terms of social media, like you say, the pushback from some, some elements, some people saying that you shouldn't do anything in isolation. If you do something in isolation, it doesn't transfer to the, to the game. What are your thoughts on that? Cause obviously that's a big pushback. I mean, you know, I, I've worked in county football where pros isolation is a big part of my work in in conjunction with opposed practice. I mean, most, most top academies will do that. What would you say to people who are pushing back at that, who may be listening to the voices saying, don't do anything in isolation or just do everything in games? Because obviously, and also just quickly, you mentioned science. Your your work's heavily based in science as well, isn't it? It's not just something that you've you know, thought up. You're, you're actually a scientific-based process. Correct, correct. Um, well, you know, we try to think of technique as, as, as automatic subconscious execution of an activity, right? So... Um, we're, we're trying to get that hammered in so that it happens on the pitch at amazing speed without a thought, really. You're just executing something that your body already knows. And we feel that having uh, enough repetition of a, of a specific, um, and this is scientifically proven, right? Do something as many times as possible. The neurons are going to create the synapses. The synapses are going to get myelinated and the, you know, the, the signals are going to travel faster through it. So science kind of backs up, backs up that idea. Practice from the best players in the world, not just of our sport, but I think competitors in other sports also say that high volume of, of low intensity repetition is very important to perfect a technique uh, that then kind of becomes part of part of part of their body part of their movement um so technique is movement with the ball basically or moving the ball with the, your body's movement so we we feel that both theory and practice uh support uh what we're doing and also the best academies in the world that i've seen are not running away from doing this at all uh it's just a matter of how they call it and how do they find it or or separate it in, in a way. Uh, I do think that going, you know, quickly to the game uh, often rewards players because that's more fun for them. But I think about it uh, that as teachers of the game, we need to take responsibility of what we are giving to our players. So uh, very often I used an analogy that, you know, my two sons, they're nearly five and, and three and they would just want to eat chocolate, but chocolate is not going to be good for them. So they would want to rush straight through lunch uh, into dessert to get the chocolate. But it's on me as their father to make sure that they get the nutrition that they need, that they get the vitamins they need. And that sometimes means that, that we need to find ways to hide uh, certain vitamins, carrots, peas uh, in a soup, sometimes uh, uh, next to uh, another thing that they like within a meal. Um, 
and give them something that maybe is not as perfectly lovable as chocolate is in order to get the chocolate at the end. So our mentality really was, let's always give them, even if you watch under eights, nines, tens, elevens in Dinamo, every, every game, every practice will end with a, you know, 20 to 30 minute game because we do feel we need to feed their passion. We need to feed their uh, ability to play the game with their friends in a competitive environment, even more so now that the kids are playing less on the street. Uh, so we're seeing that and we have to compensate. On the other hand, there is another hour and a half of training in which we feel we need to give them and correct things that uh, the street wouldn't give them themselves. So you could have a perfectly great habit um, that really is not for working or functional, but the street is not going to correct it. The game is not going to correct it because you can get away by doing the wrong things. So we feel that we have a duty and a responsibility to help them by doing st stuff the right way. And some of the stuff we recognize, receive with a proper foot, uh, do it you know, technically in an excellent way that is the most efficient, leads to most accuracy uh, by demoing technical exercises, by giving a large volume uh, of, of repetition of low, low intensity exercises that then can lead later on into training into the opposite, high intensity exercises with competition and all of that and, and finding a mix between those two. Interesting. Yeah, I think Romeo summed it up well when I spoke to him previously one of the many times when he said, obviously, you always get your outliers. You're always going to get this, you know, the players who naturally have all those abilities. But I mean, you need to plan for the everybody else. Right. I mean, the academies are full of potential. And those, you know, those the, the players were not necessarily the outliers at the moment. Well, the outliers are the, you know, not only the outliers are the outliers. Those players need a program, a system. Right. And that develops those things. And so I just want to ask you as Correct. well, I mean, Correct. what I find, you know, I'm lucky I visited Dynamo a couple of times. I visited Ajax and and Elect and many clubs or academies around the world. Is that what you what you notice is necessarily maybe not what the practices they're doing is is the information that they're giving. And I think that's what's unique about Dynamo is, is actually your attention to detail and the curriculum, obviously the book that you and Romeo produced, which is fantastic and, and is really neat because it is so detailed. And tell us a bit about that. I mean, tell us one minute, how many technical aspects are in there? And then tell us about that. Why is that so important? And having that detail and that's what you don't normally get in, in normal settings well what we've what we've outlined in the book we we went on really seeing what who are the outliers and what do they do so what can we learn from the luka modric's of the world you know it's not that dinamo zagreb's academy taught him to do a perfect outside of the foot but when we see how well he does it we ask ourselves can we teach some of our less talented players within the academy uh not to be a 1 million player, but to be a 5 million player, maybe to help him move to be being team player into first team player by growing his skill set. So um, when we when we analyze the outliers, uh, uh, we've said, okay, these are the best players in the world. We need to aspire to develop these type of, type of qualities. Let's uh, take from them what they're doing, see how they're doing it, and then put it in action. Um, that's how we came about uh, putting together all of the list of technical elements. Let's let's go, for example, into that detail. And we came out that there is, you know, 150 or something like that. We, we can go into so many moves and creative ways, how you can dribble the ball or how you can strike the ball. We narrowed it down to what we thought with our staff was uh, at Dynamo at that time, 104 of them. And basically, I, I sat down coaches from under 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12s, and I said, guys, let's discuss what can your guys do at Dinamo Zagreb under 7s or under 8s uh, without struggle, 
what can they do naturally and what are the things that are more complex and before you know it within a two-hour discussion you realize that you know three guys on my team can do this element i don't know let's say a bicycle right over the ball uh, and then a natural thing that comes after that is, is a double bicycle and you think okay what comes prior it's basically a fake movement with the body without the the, the foot going around the ball so we've Immediately, you have a progression in methodology of these one technical element now expanded to three in which uh, you can devise and place into specific ages when it's easiest to acquire it. Now, that worked for our club and uh, we highlighted in all of it as a coach, don't copy paste it, use it, use the methodology. And you have, a, for example, I, I could imagine myself going back to my team, which was under 11 in the US. And if they were only able to do what Dynamo kids do at under eight, that's where I need to go to and then go into progression, uh, making it more difficult, more complex, uh, one step at a time. So it did come from uh, thinking and research. It came from the applied world, and then it was tested with the actual coaching staff and with the reality of players that we were working with probably the most talented kids in Croatia. So to be fair, and, and even that is not the most homogeneous group that everybody can do it, right? So in any team that you have, somebody can juggle 10, somebody can juggle 20, somebody can juggle 50, and they're the same age and they play on the same team. So you have to, it's the skill of a coach really and an art to apply it to your reality, to your players. Interesting. And do you think, I mean, Chris, uh, Doherty, who we both know, made a good uh, example in the last episode. He talked about the unique um, situation within Zagreb where there's no subscription to school. So some kids go to school in the morning, some school go in the afternoon. And that means you actually have a lot of small group training, which obviously then is a heavy technical thing. Do you think that also that that sort of like perfect storm has created a situation where actually these guys are just technically better than most other players in the world at the moment? Yeah, I, I mentioned it several times in my lectures at, at Real Madrid Master when I show to them how our school system works, that half of the kids are in school in the morning and the other half in the afternoon and that our coaches therefore have to be full-time, coach in the morning, go home, come back for the afternoon or evening session. Um, you know, they were blown away. How can you even work with that? But in reality, I think it's a blessing in disguise because it does force us to be thinking individual and and. Uh, uh, small-sided rather than strategic 11 versus 11 type of thing. Uh, you know, I hear often coaches saying, oh, I can't coach unless I have 11 versus 11, you know, and, and I, I go nuts when I hear these type of sentences mm -hmm. because I, I do believe that so much can be done in smaller numbers and that this school system is actually helping Croatian uh, football uh, develop and focus more on developing the player. So, I could also say maybe that's why we have not developed our strategies in team tactics to the details that maybe you see are super present in, in Italy, for example. I, I was there in Fiorentina several times and the amount of detail in, in their team setting is, is incredible, right? And, and I was fortunate to be learning from that. But I can't expect that I give my coach one night a week as a full team and that they were going to be as organized as a team that trains, um, you know, five or six days a week altogether. But I do believe that out of this, I can get more in terms of individual player development.
Yeah, I think that's interesting. I mean, I think you've hit the nail on the head there, as they say in, in London here in UK, is that I think when I work in the Academy football, you're exactly right. The, the team coach is thinking about the team, you know, even because obviously my, I'm an individual coach. If I'm working with an academy or I'm a consulting, I want to get the access to the players. But they're like, say, it's almost like, no, I want to work on, you know, defence against attack. And, you know, I want to work on recovering the ball and stuff like this. When I was thinking, you know, especially with the younger players, we're missing a trick here. Why aren't you spending your time on individual possession? But I suppose it's the problem, isn't it? It's the issue is that coaches often associate how their teams play on the weekend with success and maybe the management do as well. So you have to be Correct. very brave. You have to be very brave and have less of an ego and say, well, actually, it doesn't really matter how we play in, in terms of how we always say who's got the best players, right? You know, if you've got, you know, three or four of the five best players on the pitch, then you're doing something right. Correct. Correct. Our, obviously, result is important. It's important to the players. It's important for their growth, for their confidence. Uh, uh, a match is feedback for them uh, and it's emotional fuel for them to continue doing this, what they're doing. So that should not be disregarded. But uh, I think the management is quite important that sends a clear picture to the coaches of what really their KPIs are. And I think those can be different um, in an amateur setting where maybe you're all about make sure the kids come back, make sure that you're serving the whole community, make sure that you have a large base. Um, and then in academies like Dinamos or, or academies on this level is about selecting the best possible players uh, from around uh, uh, your environment and ability to improve their skill set. So if we're able to see that our players can do you know, many things, then um, I think that's a much stronger signal uh, how we're doing, whether then did we win that game or not. You know, I can, I can give you an example. Um, Joško Guardiola, who is now at the World Cup, uh, you know, uh, centre-back for Croatia, lefty. Um, I, I watched him play first at, at under-13s, and he was in a game, he was a left-back. And on the wing, there was another player who currently plays in Croatian second division, and I had to fight with the coach to say, hey, we see Joško is very talented. Yeah. Why are you playing him at left back? But, you know, he, he's doing great. He's likely going to be a left back in the future. I said, you know, I agree with you. I think, you know, you're not blind, but can we develop him playing him higher up the pitch on the wing? Right. And he was like, yeah, you're probably right. So let's mix it more. And, and he put him in that situation. Now, fast forward three years later. I watched him at, and I think it was under 15 or under 17. And I think he was at the, one of the first games that he played at center back. And there was a, you know, a, a goal kick from the goalkeeper and he trapped the ball with his internal of his right foot. So he's totally lefty internal of his right foot and put the ball down straight from the air. And we started an attack and that piece of information for me was more important than the result of that game because I saw that, oh, this boy that we're working with for several years is staying in our academy, he's growing, he's healthy, so our load management is good. His technique with his weaker foot is, is that good that he's confident he's going to, you know, he didn't even try mm -hmm. to put himself to the left foot. He just knew he's going to trap it with his right. And I think that goes a lot to the coaches that, work, that worked with him to give him this type of skill set so that now we can talk about a player that with his character, with his family, with his agent choices, with his career choices, all of these things that come into the mix, we can say we also put our part in that wall, our brick in that wall, so that he can actually be the player that he is today. 
do you think you could like you know take the you know the dynamo model and then lift it up and then go and put it back for example you become academy manager at a club in england could you say right just replicate what you do there what do you think it's going to transfer all over obviously you've worked in scotland as well would that be the same um i would say that there is you know a large cultural component into you know you're conveying the message i think uh it's important um uh, i think that maybe we here in in croatia and balkans we are quite direct as coaches. Um, maybe we're not using as much guided discovery as maybe is used to in the, in the West. Uh, kids are used to that. They're used to having this type of old school uh, training. Uh, and maybe I wouldn't copy that. But I think some components uh, of the actual methodology should and, and I think have already been successfully implemented. Not that somebody was copying Croatia, but I see, for example, English football has done immense strides uh, in the last 15, 20 years um, as a national team coach. While I was with the under-19s for two years, we played at the Euros 2016, uh, Generation uh, Solanke, Mbappe, Tammy Abram, um, Turam. Uh, so top, top players that were playing uh, against us. And England was also playing fantastic football, 4-3-3, ball on the ground, very creative um, so I wouldn't say that it's a copy-paste type of thing, but I do think that there are elements of it that one should say, hey, this works for them. Let's see how we can apply it to us. And then it's you to judge whether do we need 10 minutes of that or do we need 15 minutes of that or do we need 20 minutes of that uh, to apply to our to our actual players. And just finally about Dynamo, when I was there, I remember I was very poignant that I watched, you know, most sessions from under eights all the way up to the reserve team. And I saw an element of the 1v1 dual or 1v1 dual practice in every single session. I mean, it's a really big part of my work and what I do when I work individual players. Tell us about that. How, how and why is that so important? I mean, we're talking about uh, sell a player for 10, 15, 20 million on the first team uh, in 10 years. <laughs> What, what is it that is going to sell him? It's his skill set. So part of the skill set is ball manipulation and, 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 and your own uh, physical capacities. So we're looking to develop those. But there is also the most important piece, which is how you're actually applying it in the game. Um, we do feel that at the earliest ages, it's more important to be a dribbler than is to be a passer, right? So passing is, is, is a crutch. To the players that can't do it on their own, right? <laughs> so maybe uh, maybe I'm you know exaggerating a little bit, but we if we want to equip a player to have quality on his own, he needs to be able to stand whether that's on the offensive part of the game or or as a defender, regardless. Um, so exposing them to that environment, a lot of one on ones, which is a competitive arena, which is individual responsibility in which you're exposed and highlighted, and an opportunity to play against each other without hiding uh, pushes the players, I think, training on their edge and improves their uh, abilities. Yeah, interesting. I think that's a, that's a really important part, isn't it? A, 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 the ability for a player to solve the problem himself or herself, you know, without hiding, like say, that easy option about passing. That's what I, if I'm traveling and I do a lot of individual practice, particularly in maybe environments where we're used to doing a lot of rondos and possession practices, players struggle to f solve that problem by themselves because there's always a spare path. Maybe there's always a magic man because players are used to moving the ball. 
And that's that's because of that unique environment. Every maybe everybody wants to play like Man City, the first team, or Barcelona, maybe. Whereas maybe with the younger players, you must. It's good to give them opportunity or more time on the ball, right? Correct, correct. And look, uh, we also look at what the best players in the world do, what the Man Cities of the world do, and and we do love their positional play. And I and I think it's an important component in building a team. And I think it's an it's also an important component on building a player to understand mm-hmm. what are his spaces, uh, you know, what is his body position should be, and all of that. But we're also seeing the needs that uh, um, our players not only go to that system, right? So in, in mm-hmm. Dinamo Zagreb, we can't be the Barcelonas of the world where, you know, you're going to build your system uh, or whoever else, doesn't matter which, which club I can pick, that, that is huge. And when they're missing a left winger, they're going to go out and buy whoever they need to buy to, to make up for that. We, we have to go from the opposite spectrum and say, okay, here are the most talented players that we have in this small player pool. Well, huge for us, but small, I would say, in world terms, uh, 4 million population. And we have to make the best out of them. So then we try to adjust a system of play or formation based on those qualities. So we have to give our coaches that flexibility. Um, we cannot just say, hey, you know, we play 4-3-3 and you really are a second striker. Andre Kramaric type, Eduardo da Silva type, uh, amazing players, we can't just push them aside because you don't fit a system. So mm-hmm. w- when you are so small, you really have to take you know, the best out of it. Um, I do think that in modern game, more and more um, qualities, for example, everybody loves to press these days. And one of the best ways to break a press is to dribble, right? Yeah, is yeah. to dribble, dribble out or through the press. Um, in, in this World Cup, maybe Mateo Kovacic was instrumental to us as a, as a national team. Luka Modric has this capacity himself to just you know run out of run out of pressure easily. That that makes us a, a high quality team at the end. But I do think that these skill sets that they can do stuff on their own um, are going to be more and more uh, important, especially against these type of games. And then also the irony is that Man City is actually full of 1v1 attacking players, right? De Bruyne, Silva, Foden, Grealish, right. Mares, players who can break a line with the balls. And that's the irony, right? But let's move on now because obviously I'm getting out because I'm just, you know, I'm obsessed by youth development. I don't want to spend too much time <laughs> in Dynamo. Tell us about the new transition into the sporting director role. How did that work? And tell us about how did that opportunity in Poland come about? And tell us a little, a little bit about it. Um. I think I think it was quite quite uh, you know uh, and, and one of those strokes from the sky that happens. Uh, I was working in Dinamo and, and out of the blue they they called me from Legia Warsaw saying hey we're doing an investigation of you know who can help us in our academy. Uh, we came across your name. You've done some presentations. We like what you're doing. You you, you work for a big club in Eastern Europe that is you know has a, a reference for developing players. We, you know, can we meet? So we've met and we spoke. And at that time, I wasn't ready to move to them. Um, but I guess we clicked as people and they saw that maybe I have uh, ability to do more than just manage an academy. And maybe a year and a half after that first conversation called me to say, hey, we would like to see you for a sporting director role. Um, so I, I do th- feel that that was, uh, you know, a little bit lucky, a, a little bit me kind of being ready for uh, the next step and kind of uh, taking the opportunity. And uh, sporting director role, I would say, uh, academy director definitely did prepare me for, for that role, but uh, I had to be 
now a lot more, you know, the numbers have grown, you know, everything that you didn't do in the academy. Now it's tenfold when you're buying, selling players, judging talent, uh, the, the niches are significantly smaller, how you're going to organize people under you, what is going to be the criteria uh, to hire a coach within your strategy and philosophy. Uh, a huge element of budget came into play where you had to figure out, you know, what do we actually have? Who can we sell? Who can we buy within what money? Are we able to, you know, compensate players? So none of them was as important in the youth academy where you really are three, five, ten years focused. Here you're much closer to the weekly emotions of a first team result. And it, it was an, an amazing experience. But I did like the opportunity to influence further down the academy and and another place. So in a sporting director role, um, you know, that that is the ultimate thing that as an academy guy, you come and you push the guy into the first team and then you 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 watch them blow it, right? Whereas uh, uh, here as a sporting director, that was also part of my responsibility. Who are we promoting as a young player? Who are we kind of protecting and building a project player out of not bringing competition into his role? Who do we believe in? Who do we not believe in? And who do we give more time by a loan? So it, it was the next step in, in strategic uh, thinking uh, that has helped me develop uh, as a professional as well. How long were you there in Poland? Uh, I was uh, uh, only a year, so I, I spent uh, I spent a year there. Yeah. And so then, tell us about Brentford. You come over to sunny West London. I mean, what how did that come about? And what was I mean? I, I'm interested also. I mean, tell us about your role there, but also culturally, you've gone from obviously because you spent time in America, I see, but you've gone from working in Zagreb to then Poland to then England. What are the challenges there? Yeah. Actually, I was a finalist for a job at Brentford that was at the time a technical director role. And uh, I went through the first interviews. They invited me back several months later for the next one. And it was me and six English guys. And uh, in the meantime, they decided to put the role more into the recruitment area uh, rather than a technical director um, and, and, and hired a local guy, which totally made sense because at that time they were pulling a lot of players out of, out of League One. Uh, we're good, still good friends and we cooperated well. And uh, I joined them as uh, on a consultancy basis, uh, advising on some players. We even spoke about, you know, some coaching uh, challenges and, and opportunities, uh, uh, how we would pick the right people to work. But uh, it was a short stint with an amazing experience because they operate in a significantly different way, right? They had no academy. They were thinking more in scouting and recruitment, but uh, spent a lot of time in player development on the first team level. Uh, which I've admired. Uh, they were bold to take gambles, right? Uh, which I think reflects a little bit Ma Matthew Benham's uh, narrative of, mm -hmm. of going against the grain, uh, yeah. going against yeah. what the rest of the people think and, and what made him successful in his life. And that all has uh, moved on onto Brentford's spirit and decision-making. And, and I think that it's not a chance that they are today in the Premier League because it was bound to happen uh, as you do stuff right for many years in a row. Uh, it's just a matter of moment when you're going to hit the right players, you're going to hit the right coach together um, and, and making sure that that group uh, goes on and, and they've been super successful. And so then you head back to, to um, Croatia to yeah. become to Heiduk. Yeah, yeah. So tell us about that then. I mean, now you're back, back in you know, your home country, as it were. What was that like there? What were the main challenges? And you know, tell us about that role. Um, in that role, I, I joined the club mid-season, um, where 
we knew coming in we're going to be you know uh, uh, covering a hole in the budget um, most of the clubs in Croatia live off selling Hajduk is one of them a huge uh, history historical club uh, with a large fan base good youth academy uh, maybe not as developed or detailed as Dinamo was at that time but also catching up big time but it has produced significant uh, players for the Croatian national team even at this World Cup I think there was uh, several players uh, from the region, very, very significant. Ivan Perisic, now and now at Tottenham, Marko Livaja, Mario Pašalic, uh, Atalanta's player, Nikola Vlašić, Torino. They all had very important roles uh, within within uh, our national team for years now, and, and in particular uh, in this last month in Qatar. Um, and joining a club like that kind of um, really was, we were the underdogs compared to Dinamo budget-wise and all that, and we had to turn towards developing younger players because of lack of lack of resources. Um, quite a difficult moment when you are the club that sells players with potential, and then COVID hits and kills the market. <laughs> so uh, that was that was a very difficult time because no longer you had to uh, you had the ability to promote young players that you have done in the past. But we had to sell players, whoever we had offers for, just to you know survive the the COVID crisis that has really affected uh, the club big time. Um, it also gave me a, another element of uh, being at home, uh, public persona under a lot of pressure, uh, high expectations. But I enjoyed the, the daily work with my people in the club, and you know those are the things that are necessary for you to feed your own passion and enthusiasm to to kind of push through new things then a new president did you, did arrived. You, and a, did you try sorry to interrupt them did you try yeah. then did you think about your coaching background did you look at the coaching setup in the academy and what they were doing and try and have an influence on that like you say to maybe try and improve or modernize or um that that was that would have been part of the next step of my job at, at that time i was just too occupied in you know forming millions out of nothing out of the roster right. that we currently had and try to replace it with cheap affordable players from the region just for the club to survive because uh, I was really pushing hard not to let anybody go from the academy I know a lot of clubs that have uh, that have been bleeding all, all over Europe due to COVID so I find one of my biggest, biggest successes is that I've protected every job in the academy that there was knowing and understanding that this is vital to the club going forward uh, so I really didn't have a chance to influence um, the work in the academy in that much. It was more about how do we, you know, in this dead market, try to try to sell some players that can that can keep us going. Interesting. I said, and tell us about then your next role. So you go back to the UK to Scotland, right in Hibs, and what was that? Yeah, uh, at Hibs, uh, uh, Graham Matthew was the sporting director at that time, and uh, uh, we kind of uh, met somewhere online, I think, on a transfer room Zoom, and we really liked each other. We started talking about working together, and uh, part of my role of joining Hibs was to kind of internationalize uh, a little bit their operations and bring some knowledge on player development, but also uh, players from abroad that maybe have not been as present in, in, Hibs, in Hibs era. Uh, and I was with them just for five, six months. And then as Graham left the club, I, I did as well. Uh, I didn't feel that we had a you know clear uh, idea and vision where I can actually contribute. So I've, I've decided to move on, but it was a great experience because I got to watch the Scottish League 
compare, you know, you have to guess which players are going to go there, do well, adjust, uh, have the qualities that we have in this area or in, you know, continental Europe, and then be able to adjust. So it's a professional challenge for me that has really uh, helped me adapt to another culture, to another style of play, which after Poland, after working for Brentford, uh, you know, has helped me. And, and now I'm doing the same for, for Hungary, for Honved. So then tell us about your current role, because now you, you've gone away from the technical director, sport director role into just consultation with several clubs. Tell us about that. I mean, tell us about the decision process and what are the benefits of that for you? Um, my first experience of, of being an advisor to the owner in a sports sense was in Sarajevo, Bosnia, where a new enthusiastic owner took over the club and I could not take over the role, but was a great guy and I wanted to help him in, in the process. And that, that kind of spiraled into uh, uh, moving my career a little bit in that direction. Um, I still uh, have sporting director ambitions and I'm likely going to be a sporting director again uh, in, in, in a club when, when everything fits well. But I'm really enjoying this moment in which I am able to interact with the ownership groups, help them develop a strategic uh, uh, platform, and then put and select the right people to work within that framework. So uh, I'm fortunate to have Chris Doherty uh, be the you know the main guy in Honved. Uh, we are uh, going to probably hire throughout this spring a sporting director for the Hungarian club in Serbia, TSC, that I work for. Um, because I do feel that that's what the club needs as the next step. You know, very often clubs move ranks um, in terms of what do they do on the pitch. So they, they have better players, they have a bigger budget, they bring better coaches, but then they don't develop the scouting network or their strategic process. They don't develop their sustainable process. They don't develop their soft infrastructure. So forget about uh, having databases, tracking players over a longer period of time or promoting players into the first team um, or even small things like having a good medical care uh, for their players, a good legal department that supports in your international transfers that all of a sudden happen. Um, for example, in, in TSC, in Serbia, you know, we sold a player this summer for 1.6 million, which is four times more than their last ever biggest sale. And now that entails now an international transfer of another kind between unknown clubs, different legal systems uh, between Russia and Serbia. So, uh, you know, coming in with auxiliaries or people from my network is helping these clubs grow and formulate and be stronger as, as entities kind of. That's how I see my role. Would you ever consider going back into the coaching? You, you know, it's always when you're a coach, you're a coach forever. It's always itching. Um, depends on really uh, what the environment and the moment would be. I do think that maybe it's more natural for me as a long-term thinker to be in these kind of long-term roles, which sporting director and academy directors likely are. But I do love being in the locker room with the group of players and kind of seeing them grow. Um, you know, when you hear from some of your past players how you've impacted their life or how you've directed them as people, not even as football players, mm -hmm. uh, there's nothing better that, that you can hear. Uh, so I, I really enjoy that. So there, in the right circumstances, there could be an opportunity uh, and I might uh, take it as well to, to go into coaching as well again. But I do think that maybe my natural tendencies right now and my skill set has really developed deeply into, you know, managing budgets, buying, selling players, 
gathering the staff that works uh, under you and alongside you, uh, getting the right people to put that methodology in place that we spoke about before and actually being operatively in the nitty gritty day by day. Um, And assembling that group of people, I think it's, it's, you know, an incredible amount of work and and quite valuable, uh, at least from my perspective. And I'm really enjoying that as well. Interesting. And, and what finally, what, what would what would advice would you give to you know someone who's aspiring to be a sporting te- or technical director of a club? Um, I, I would say that you know maybe my pathway is somewhat unique, coming from a coaching journey. I, I, a lot of sporting and technical directors that I meet have, have very often been uh, former players of, of high caliber, and they've gathered that level of experience. Uh, I feel that I'm fortunate when I have uh, had this coaching background, academy director background, because I also understand them, right? Uh, I understand how they think. I understand what is their priority and I can appreciate what they bring to the table and how to, how to manage uh, them best. Um, in order to grow into these roles, um, I think you, you know, I, I'm a guy who I don't really make plans. I have not made plans when I started 20 years ago that I'm going to be here today uh, in these type of roles and I'm going to have this career. I think it's about having passion for the game and fueling it and living it day by day, passion for learning and growing so that you can actually have the skill set when the opportunity comes that you can deliver. Uh, so always growing yourself into, into what you can do and uh, developing your own network of people that are going to be working with you because you really depend on their contribution the most. Just like a coach depends a lot on his players, I think a sporting director depends a lot on the interaction of the coach, the fitness coach, the scouting team, the medical team that is supporting the players, all the way down to, I don't know, a sports psychologist or even a, a team manager or a team mom that takes care of players' needs in the in the first team arena. Um, so I would say... You know, follow your passion, fuel it, uh, be ready to work relentlessly on your own skill set and on the project where you're working. Uh, really, most of my jobs uh, that I have obtained have come through volunteering at something while I was working something else to survive. <laughs> so uh, I, I think that being willing to do the extra mile and the extra step uh, is what I value. And even right now, I formed a kind of a small scouting group and I want to see who is going to sustain their volunteer uh, type of status and role before I can, you know, see which one grows to, to take a full-time or a part-time and then a full-time role and, and go through the, the tests of time of endured motivation. Ivan, thank you very much. It's been fantastic. Appreciate your time, mate. Likewise, mate. I appreciate it. Thanks for uh, the opportunity and... Uh, Wish uh, you and your viewers uh, all the best for the holidays in the new year. Thanks for tuning in to the MyPersonalFootballCoach.com Soccer Player Development Podcast. MyPersonalFootballCoach.com's dynamic ball mastery program is the world's leading online individual technical training program, proven and developed at the highest level in the English Premier League. Sign up now to train like the pros and take your game to the next level. Master the ball, master the game.